<clears throat> All right, everybody. Welcome to the Monday Compliance Roundtable on The Compliance Guy. I'm your host, Sean Weiss. As always, I want to say thank you so much for tuning in, logging on, and just hanging out with me and my friends for a little while as we talk about all things billing, coding, documentation, auditing, and compliance related. Basically, we're talking about the world of healthcare. So joining me on the roundtable today are three of my favorite people. Um, and I'm not just saying that because I'm face-to-face -face with them. Uh, they really are. They're three of my favorite people because they're incredible sources for information. They are outstanding auditors and compliance professionals, but most importantly, they're just great people. So joining me today are my friends, Scott Kraft, Stephanie Allard, and Paul Spencer. Um, today, I think we have a great agenda. Uh, lots of stuff to talk about. Stephanie, I want to start with you first. Um, because, you know, there's a lot of panic on the streets with regard to a notice that was being sent out by Cigna uh, back in May that has indicated they are changing their modifier 25 policy. And as of August, I believe it's August 13th of 2022, they are going to begin to require that uh, providers submit documentation to a dedicated fax line when they are doing what? Uh, other services on the same day. So regardless of specialty, if you're billing an E&M with a 25, you're going to have to submit that documentation to support that. So Scott and Paul, question to you guys. They're talking about established patient visits, right? 212 through 215, if I, if, if I remember the memorandum correctly. How many possible beneficiaries does Cigna have? And how many possible providers participate with Cigna? And of those providers, how many actually render a 99212 through 99215, bill with a modifier 25, because they've done a separate service on the same day? And I, I'm serious when I ask this question. I mean, I would imagine for beneficiaries, right, we're, we're well into the millions, the, ten, the tens of millions. And, you know, the funny thing is the first thing I thought about when we talked about this, well, maybe this will stop the profligate, unnecessary use of modifier 25 in situations when uh, it's not actually required on the claim, right? So on the one hand, you know, if you want to start somewhere, it's like maybe we don't need modifier 25 with some of these lab services and other situations where it's not really required. But having said that, you know, that that fax machine or whatever that is, is going to be humming, right? Because the sheer volume of charges that we're talking about here is just astronomical. Yeah. I'm, Paul, do you... I'm not I'm not yeah, privy to Cigna's analytics in the same way that we are privy to Medicare's analytics, but I would right. uh, recommend that all the listeners of this podcast put all of their money in the lumber industry, because this is a tremendous amount of paper that's going to be pouring out of these fax machines when this starts in August. Uh, and I can't fathom why anybody would put this policy together other than the fact that 
They've done education poorly. I first became a certified coder in 1998, and I was told right out of the uh, box, 25 and 59 are the most problematic modifiers. It's a quarter century later, almost, and the most problematic modifiers are 25 and 59. And the reason why they're problematic is that education is not forthcoming. It's not enough to just say we're denying that service. There needs to be meaningful education put forward. And, uh, you know, that is a failure on behalf of the insurance company that just throw up their hands and say, you know, burn out our fax line uh, just out of spite. Well, and what, so, what is, is yeah, go ahead, I was Scott. just go ahead. I was just going to add what's particularly concerning about it is how many times do we talk to providers? How many times do they say something like, well, I don't do this because XXX. And the reason is some variant of I'm worried about getting in trouble. It's too much trouble. I don't think it's going to be paid. And so, you know, I look, I have no doubt that this was part of the calculation, but it may chill the use of E&M services in situations where they may be appropriate because the provider is just going to say, I, you know, I don't want that smoke, right? I don't want to be on their radar screen. So let's just go ahead and not bill evaluation and manage, management, even though it may be indicated in this case. And then that's one less thing I have to pop into this thing. And, and I just don't have to worry about it. So I, I, I agree with you. I had, I had another thought. And then, Stephanie, I want to come back to you from an RCM standpoint on this, right? So get ready for that question that's coming up here in a minute. My thoughts are this. One, based on what you said, Scott, right? <clears throat> millions of beneficiaries, possibly even tens of millions of beneficiaries. What is the actual possibility or probability that they're even going to be able to review a fraction of the documents that come in? And if they're not reviewing these documents and they're arbitrarily downcoding levels of service or refusing, denying services, whether it's the ENM or it's the procedure on the same day, won't that create a liability situation for Cigna potentially? I think it's gonna do two things. It's gonna create a potential liability issue for Cigna, but you know, <laughs> We talked a little bit about education a minute ago and the importance of understanding when modifier 25 is appropriate for usage, understanding how to properly do things. And when you're denying things as a payer without regard to what those policies are, without the actual review of those things, it just further muddies the waters of people's understanding in our industry of how to correctly bill or use these modifiers, right? Because you come back from that. And like I say, I mean, from our perspective, we say when we see improper denials, we say, well, let's appeal these. Let's work through the proper way to do this and what's the appropriate way to bill something. But when you start to see these things come back, my concern is that it's just going to result in a, a cascade of incorrect billing because the, the clinic side will just adjust in some manner, right? It goes back to this notion of, well, I just won't do it that way anymore, even though you did it the right way when you submitted it. Yeah, I, I think you're spot on. Stephanie, so... My question to you, because you do a lot of revenue cycle analysis, okay? How badly is this going to screw up the RCM for medical practices if they're having to submit 
documentation for every single EM visit with a minor procedure and a modifier 25 attached. How badly? I mean, let, let's just hypothetically say stigma makes up 18% of a practice's patient population. Okay. Pretty yeah. significant percentage. Yeah. How badly is this going to affect the RCM? So what what I'm kind of anticipating and curious about, first of all, practices need to have processes in place up front to get documentation on the claim. But I'm actually kind of thinking we're going to see more of an issue on the back end after claims go out. Because like you said, Sean, are they really going to sit there and read all of these notes? I don't know. We already have payers who seem to have some kind of auto-deny process in place. They're going to have the notes up front already, but a couple of things come to mind just about the potential hiccups with this. One of them is, is Cigna's system set up to properly have the claim with documentation? You know, we have issues already with unlisted procedures. You're supposed to send the documentation, and then you call the insurance, and they said they never got the note. So that's one question that would end up in a denial. And then I just wonder in general if they will start to deny a higher volume, um, even if they are reviewing the notes. You know, there's many times that with some of the clients I already work with on denials, I'm going in and picking out what's clearly supported in the note and sending back the appeal after the insurance already reviewed the, the note. So... I'm thinking that it potentially is going to have more of, of a, a stop issue on the back end and actually getting reimbursement for these. Um, I do think, too, that there are a lot of practices out there that have not had enough education. So, you know, as auditors, and I think Paul and Scott would agree, you know, there's a lot of times we'll look at notes during an audit and we'll say, hey, this is not supported. It does not mean ultimately the scenario did not support that, but the note didn't. So, you know, there's things that practices can do to be proactive by having processes in place from the administrative level, getting ready for claim submission, be ready to appeal, but a large component of that is making sure your providers understand how to properly reflect the work they're doing. Because if you don't have the documentation, then you're not gonna have the base you need to, to ultimately get paid in the end anyways. And, and I think that's very important. And, and what further frustrates me about this is circling back to what we talked about a second ago. I think practices could and should be doing all of those things. But if there is an arbitrariness to the way that Cigna decides not to pay these claims, it just creates mud, right? Because you've done this work to do what you believe is correct. You feel like you're following the rules. You're getting denials at a frequency that you know, is frustrating, but probably not financially viable to pursue. Uh, and that's, you know, it, it's it, that part is just very concerning, right? Well, show yeah. of hands, uh, who here on the panel trusts uh, a random auditor at Cigna to look at documentation and make a determination that is correct as to the appropriateness of that modifier on first pass? I'm uh, seeing... Yeah, I I'm seeing no hands, uh, which is exactly uh, the level of confidence that we have in those reviewers. Uh, and understand that certified coders are not as prevalent at an insurance carrier 
as you might expect. Maybe they are in their SIU and their auditing arms, but this is not something that's going to go to an SIU department. This is something that's going to fall off a fax machine and somebody is going, based on the volume, it's got to be all hands on deck. And at a certain point, when that volume gets to a high number, it's going to make a determination. They, you know, Cigna is going to have to make a business decision of, do we want to review records all day or do we actually want to adjudicate claims, which is our mission? Well, uh, and I think, so to speak. and I think to Sean's point, what we don't know is how many of these things that come through will actually be looked at by human eyes. And, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm notoriously skeptical or questioning of motives, right? And so if, you know, think about it this way, if this policy resulted in a decrease by say 2% of E&M utilization going out to Cigna, just it, these are situations where the practice decided of its own volition not to assign an E&M service code, therefore there's nothing to submit, there's no modifier 25, like what does that look like on Cigna's bottom line? Yeah. Isn't yeah, it amazing I, that so, they, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, isn't it amazing that they chose the highest volume CPT codes first? I mean, not yeah. even a test so run I, on something smaller to see how this works. Let's let's just try 99213, which is the most billed code in America to every insurance carrier and see how it goes. Uh, right. Wow. So I want to go, I want to go back and refresh everybody's memory on something. And it's called the Thomas Love Settlement. Okay. And if you're not familiar with this, um, this was uh, Rick Love, who was a medical doctor um, who sued Blue Cross Blue Shield Association and a number of defendants. Now, what the complaint that was filed um, against the Blues alleged was that. Um, Blue Cross Blue Shield um, violated what's referred to as the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act. Rico. Um, this is, yeah, this is 18 USC subsection 1961. And basically what happened, and here's why I'm bringing up the Thomas Love settlement. Um, and y'all tell me if any of this sounds familiar <laughs> misrepresenting now keep in mind the blues even though they entered into the settlement agreement remember they denied any of these allegations and they denied any liability <laughs> so let's just keep that in mind yet they agreed to settle this thing so tell me if any of this sounds familiar to you misrepresenting and or failing to disclose the use of edits to unilaterally bundle down code and or reject claims for medically necessary covered services. Hmm. Failing to pay for medically necessary services in accordance with member plan documents. Failing and or refusing to recognize CPT modifiers. This one was specifically modifier 25 concealing and or misrepresenting the use of improper guidelines and criteria to deny, delay, and or reduce payment for medically necessary covered services, misrepresenting and or refusing to disclose applicable fee schedules, and failing to pay claims for medically necessary covered services within the required statutory and contractually obligated time periods. 
And as part of the business practice commitments by the Blues, you know, they agreed to provide access to all of their external review processes based on medical necessity, to continue to fund initiatives to reduce the percentage of resubmitted claims for covered services, to not automatically reduce the intensity coding of evaluation and management codes filled for certain covered services. I mean, I can go on and on and on about what this settlement agreement was, but folks, does any of this sound like a potential setup for a blank, blank, blank versus Cigna Healthcare down the road? Sure, it does. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. And I actually had a situation where uh, one of the clients, I, I review some of the different denials that they have coming in, and it's gotten to the point with Blue Cross Blue Shield where it does appear to be an auto deny. They ask for the notes. We have They're to appeal every time. Yeah. Now, the thing is, though, one of the denials came back. They upheld their denial. And Blue Cross Blue Shield, in the box where their auditor put the comment, it stated that the denial was due to the diagnosis being exactly the same as the diagnosis on the procedure, which I know is not correct. So I actually went into Blue's website for that state, pulled their own policy, referenced their own policy, and sent it back with another appeal letter. Their policy specifically said it did not have to be another diagnosis. So it is, you know, there's times where it depends on the auditor on the other side as well. It's, you know, what they're, what they're looking at, what they think they're following, well, listen, I, we could we could beat we could beat this this issue into the ground. I know we have several others. Paul, let me give you the last word on this uh, Sigma Modifier 25 issue. Well, two things. I think each uh, fax to Sigma should be followed by a fax to your insurance commissioner, um, you know, telling them that this is going on. And uh, when you first said the Thomas Love settlement, I was thinking to myself, didn't they tour with Barry White in 1975? But maybe it's something completely different. <laughs> All right. With that said, Paul, I'm going to stick with you. Um, I think the next topic is as critical to the prior topic that we just came off of, which is urine drug testing. Um, screening and definitives. Uh, when can we do them? When should we do them? What are the limitations of coverage on these things? Why are payers so obsessed with UDTs at this point? And then um, what, if any, well, I'm going to save that for, for a follow-up question. Let's Let's talk about what you're seeing as an auditor and compliance professional every day that you're dealing with UDTs and how prevalent of an issue is this? Well, I wish that I could say that it was restricted to one type of provider. At first, when this was happening, of course, they went right to the source. They went to pain management clinics because these are the clinics that are, in general, prescribing more opioids for chronic pain management than other uh, specialties. Uh, now, what we're beginning to see, uh, in addition to 
calling out the frequency of UDT testing, as well as the intensity of UDT testing, as far as how many uh, different types of drug classes you're testing for, we're now seeing them go after the clinical laboratories themselves. And this is incredibly painful for a clinical laboratory, more so than a medical practice, because you have to look at it from the laboratory's perspective. They're receiving an order from a physician to test. You know, that is what they receive. Uh, half the time, they're lucky if they get an ICD-10 code that's either checked off on a box or written longhand or uh, miracle of miracles. It's actually an ICD-10 code on that requisition. Uh, but they're at the mercy of the information that's being sent to them by physicians around the country. And now they're going directly after the lab. And the labs are trying to make that point and saying, look, you know, you have to go towards the doctor for this and look at the intent of the visit. Did they have an intent to order that drug screening and why? And another issue that we've come up against, particularly in the state of Georgia, but I'm sure that this exists in other states that are trying to get a hold of an opioid epidemic that right now is killing 300 patients a week, um, whether it's a combination of pain management uh, drugs that are self-applied incorrectly or the fentanyl that's getting out there. Uh, you know, there are questions about frequency as it compares to LCDs versus state law. We know that in, after going through it several times in the state of Georgia, that state law for frequency in Georgia is actually more robust than what we have on the federal level through the Medicare program. Uh, so that's, that's something of a summary of what we've been seeing in the auditing space, and uh, it's not going to end anytime soon. So that's a great that's a great explanation of what's going on. So I want to I want to go back a little bit and I want to talk about something specific that you brought up about the fact that the laboratories are being inundated with requests to be able to support the medical necessity of the services for which they are billing. Well, two things. There was a case. It is Grote v. Boston Heart Diagnostics that was just in the Second Circuit Court out of Washington, D.C., where at first the court misinterpreted the HHS OIG guidelines. And later, during um, oral arguments by the, you know, by the defense counsel, actually overturned their initial uh, um, assessment of the situation. And they said, you know what, HHS in their guidance and OIG in their guidance documents, and for anybody who is a compliance nerd who's really interested in understanding this stuff, um, you can look at um, the Federal Register 63 at 45076, okay? And here's what it says. To your point, Paul, Laboratories should take all reasonable steps to ensure that they are not submitting claims for services that are not covered, reasonable, and necessary. Okay? Fair statement. Upon request, a laboratory should be able to produce or obtain from the treating physician the documentation to support the medical necessity of the services 
the laboratory has provided and billed to a federal health care program. However, we recognize that laboratories do not and cannot treat patients or make medical necessity determinations. So really, what is it that a laboratory is receiving as documentation from a physician's practice? Anybody? If they're lucky, the requisition, uh, first of all, and if they ask for it, they are, they're getting the encounter from the date of the requisition. That's right. Uh, with, That's right. with no context as to the treatment of that patient uh, before or after that date of requisition. So I want to I state one more thing for you, okay? It goes on to say further. OIG guidance in describing a laboratory's duties to ensure that it does not submit claims for medically unnecessary tests does not include among those duties a laboratory's obligation to make an independent determination of the medical necessity of each test performed and billed. So I think you all would agree with me that there's been a long-standing tension between Medicare's statutory medical necessity requirement and um, those of, you know, um, uh, the reviewers, right? One of the things that I want to talk about, and I'll leave it here because this has been promulgated into the regulations, right? Here's what it says. Um, it is It is up to the reviewer. Here it is right here. One. Provide ordering physician information sufficient to identify the claim being reviewed, okay? But here's what it says. If the documentation provided by the entity submitting the claim, that's going to be who? That's going to be the laboratory. Usually the lab, yeah. Okay, so that's the laboratory. If the documentation provided by the entity submitting the claim does not demonstrate that the service is reasonable and necessary, we, Medicare, will take the following action. One, provide the ordering physician information sufficient to identify the claim being reviewed. Two, request from the ordering physician those parts of a beneficiary's medical record that are relevant to the specific claim being reviewed. And three, if the ordering physician does not supply the documentation requested, inform the entity submitting the claim that the documentation has not been supplied and then deny the claim. So there's still an out for CMS if they don't think that the documentation is appropriate. This is why Grote v. Boston Heart Diagnostics is so critical because, again, a laboratory cannot be held liable for damages sustained by the federal payer program or by a carrier based on the fact that they are acting in good faith because they are receiving a requisition form or a physician order, whatever you want to call it, that, that is supposed to establish the appropriateness, reasonableness, and necessity of the service. Again, laboratories cannot determine clinical judgment. They can't determine medical necessity. And as such, if they are getting hit, by these entities trying to recoup money, like we have a new one, Paul, that we talked about yesterday from a CERT program. A CERT literally did a review, a data analysis, and assessed 
a small demand against this laboratory in Georgia, but still, the laboratory should not be liable for this. Thoughts? So I, I think the you question stumped. that <laughs> – stump, you stumped everybody. <laughs> so I think the question that I would ask, and, and I think this is a little bit different. This is a little bit of an extension of the UDT question, but there's some correlation. So what do we reasonably expect the lab to do when they get incomplete requisitions, when they get uh, things that – I mean, it gets complicated, right, because a patient may not go to the same lab every time. But, you know, if a lab, if they are going to the same lab every time, what's our reasonable expectation in terms of how that lab might track frequency or might track, it, medic, I'll say, medical necessity at the diagnosis code level? And the reason I'm saying that is because I had worked with a client, and this client ordered copious amounts of labs. I, I mean, you know, dozens of labs as part of different types of services provided, and I could just eyeball what was getting sent to the lab, and, and I can say, well, okay, the diagnosis coding assigned to these requisitions does not support the ordered lab test under payer policy. It's patently obvious. And so if I'm the lab, you know, the lab just did all the tests, right? And then when the test got denied, the lab went to the provider and said, well, do you have a better reason for, for this lab than the one that you gave us? Mm -hmm. And that's where, where I'm coming from with that question, right? It's like the lab, in some respects, gets caught in the middle because they're just doing work in good faith, but then the question becomes, one, what do we expect the lab to do, uh, and, and what, if, if anything, do we expect them to ask from the provider that they may not be getting now? I can, I can offer a window into that, actually. Uh, part of my work history, and this goes back, geez, it's almost 30 years now, where did the time go, was uh, a short time with Quest Diagnostics. It was actually so long ago that it was still SmithKline Beecham Clinical Labs. And part of my role there in the very short time that I was there was to write or assist in writing a compliance program for capturing the information that you were just talking about, Scott. Uh, you know, going back to the physicians and asking for additional uh, diagnosis codes when uh, a diagnosis code that was placed on a claim was insufficient for coverage by an insurance carrier. Uh, what it led to, I mean, we try, you know, uh, being a bit, 10 people off the floor who were responding to a $300 million fine that that lab had received for unbundling panels, uh, you know, we came up with the best possible option that we could. And it was still a lousy option because we, again, we're always, when you're a clinical laboratory, you're always, always, always at the mercy of the information that is provided to you by the clinic up front. And if, if the lab is learning upon claim submission that that laboratory service is not covered for that particular condition, you know, particularly a laboratory that is now Quest that has enormous amounts of employee manpower and resources to be able to research that? Do you believe that a physician practice has anywhere close to that resource or that knowledge base to understand that? And the answer I, to that is a solid no. I, I agree. And I think the challenge that, that we see sometimes with the lab, or at least in a couple of these instances, this was my working hypothesis, was that if you're talking about a provider 
that is sending you the volume of testing. And, and, and if we talk about pain management and UDTs, right? Like some, everybody is somebody's best customer, as they say, right? So if, you're, if, if a physician practice is sending this extraordinary volume of UDTs and you're taking a denial rate of a certain percentage point, but you kind of know that going back to the practice, your feeling is, well, if we, if we bother these guys too much, they may try to walk all this business to another lab. You know, that was the scenario I was running into with the project I was working on, right, where I think the lab just viewed it as a cost of doing business, and they might ask questions about it, but they weren't going to push too much, right? And so somewhere behind the scenes of that, I felt like that was a little bit of it, and I don't know if that specifically might be impacting some of this UDT stuff, but, you know, if you're a high-volume pain management mm -hmm. practice, you, you know, you've got a lot of drug screens going out, and that's yeah. a big piece and of business. And and you know, you know, we've been in the midst of an open opioid epidemic now. I you know, it's going on uh, twenty years since the introduction of uh, you know uh, uh, hydromorphone into uh, into pain management uh, regimens, and we're telling physicians on the state level test, you know, verify, make certain that they are sticking very closely to their prescribed treatment course. And it's very important to do that. And understanding that, uh, you know, it, it is not an exact science. I mean, uh, you know, there are some patients that are on gabapentin. There are some that are on, uh, you know, hydromorphone or, uh, you know, uh, uh, any number of different uh, combinations that are unique to that patient. And uh, then we get into a situation we haven't even touched on the fact that Humana will only pay for a certain amount of drug classes due to a misreading of an LCD that says, well, there are only 14 drug classes. Well, that's interesting because because CPT identifies 22, uh, <laughs> but you're only going to pay for uh, 14. Uh, that's very interesting. So, so, so Stephanie, let me go to you because. We we have been working on an interesting case together, right? And this one, there's a lot of things going on with this particular entity, but one of the big issues was the UDTs. And a question arose as to, can you bypass a screening and go straight to a definitive test? What's the answer? So it's one of those things where what works from the clinical side or even workflow in the clinic is not really matching what the payers want to see. Essentially, they're wanting to see screenings first and then based on results going to definitive. And the client we have right now, the issue is, okay, well, they're pretty positive there's going to be things that are showing there. And they really need to get to that point of definitive. The screening's not really what they're concerned with. So one of the conversations we actually had was, what is this workflow going to look like inside of their clinic as far as asking the patient for a sample? Um, is the sample large enough to be able to be held? How many days could the sample be held to then test definitive later? And they're really having to think through a lot of those um, logistics as to how they could do this compliantly from the billing perspective, but also support what they need on the clinical side. And for them too, you know, it's right. a situation where 
they're aware the patient is potentially misusing or they have concerns or things like that. So, you know, it's it's not something that they can take a screening now, ask the patient to come back three days later when they get the result they know they're going to get, then do another sample with definitive. Um, and even from the lab side, they were they were discussing whether or not the lab has the proper storage capabilities for that for the urine right. samples. So, but so yeah. one of the so again, I think it's important for people to keep in mind that you know you can go straight to a definitive if a physician believes that what they're testing for wouldn't show up in a screening, and I think. Fentanyl is a perfect example of something that will not show up in a screening UDT. I think also another example would be in the event that a patient presents and what they're telling the physician just doesn't jive with what it is that the physician is experiencing or witnessing or, you know, uh, you know, uh, seeing as a behavior in the patient, they can go straight to a definitive. And I think that's really important. Um, you know, with there documentation. are some with documentation, of <laughs> course, critical. Yeah. But I think there are some groups that are doing they're collecting a, a, a sample to do both a screening and definitive on the same day. Is that is that something that's allowed, Stephanie? Yes. No. So Paul, anybody, I, th I think it comes down to that documentation with that one group. There were definitely notes where within the assessment and plan of the E&M encounter, it was very clear their concern. And they had about a paragraph, which again, remember macro statements and things can be set up, but they had about a paragraph that talked about the patient's behavior, why they were at risk for abuse of the substance and um, all of their concerns. And there's also, I don't know if Scott or Paul remembers right now, but there's some kind of standardized tool that is used as well that providers can do the question and answers that show the patient's potential risk for abuse. And I've seen that before as well. You know, uh, so as part of this, I also listened in about a month and a half ago to a webinar that was presented by Quest Diagnostics about, uh, you know, the utility of urine drug screenings uh, and what needs to go into that. I mean, uh, you know, you would hope that if they're doing a presumptive and definitive test on the same day, that there is some type of clinical tie-in for it. Uh, now, uh, when they're doing a presumptive and they find either a sub-therapeutic level of medication that's already prescribed, they might want to do a definitive test. If they're finding a positive Many times it turns out to be a false positive just because it's a presumptive test and it's not as accurate as a definitive test. They might want to graduate on to that definitive test. But, you know, a lot of it is going to be driven by the documentation of that patient's unique uh, presentation uh, in order to be able to substantiate both the presumptive and definitive test on the same date. All right. So, again, I think this was another brilliant conversation um, in an area that is um, under intense scrutiny, not only by the commercial payers, 
but really by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services in the Office of the Inspector General. Another topic, I feel like these are all hit list topics. I think the last topic that I want to talk about today, uh, Scott, I want, to, I want to direct this one to you. Um, obviously, we're starting to see a rise again in some of the COVID numbers. Uh, thank God what we're seeing in the way of cases are really just mild uh, upper respiratory infections, at least for the most part. Uh, nobody's been coming out talking about, you know, a spike in deaths or any anything that we heard back during the uh, prime of the pandemic in 2020 and 2021. Thank God. Um, but post-pandemic, lots of problems, right? We're hearing lots of horror stories. We're reading lots of things that are coming out in settlement agreements from OIG, DOJ, um, Deputy Director Polite uh, from the DOJ has come out and talked about provider responsibility and all these different things. Gave a great presentation a few days ago, and we could talk about that on our next roundtable. But I want to I want to turn to you. Uh, Scott, because I know you've been dealing with several uh, clients and several matters on a post-pandemic review. And really, I want to talk about what you're seeing, what it is that the providers are getting hammered on, and what is it that the, the carriers are truly focused on going after. Um, so I'll start, I'll start by saying that I think uh, in the height of the public health emergency, uh, obviously things changed very quickly. And it's been a couple of years now and we forget, right? When you think about Medicare telehealth, we, we pivoted from, you know, the patient has to be in this originating site and they can't receive telehealth in their own home. And they, ha you know, it has to be done under a HIPAA secure uh, device. And within a couple of weeks, it was like, well, you can FaceTime the patient at their house uh, and bill a service for it, right? And so we made all these like quick adjustments, but what we're seeing uh, is is you're right. The the pandemic is winding down, at least from a public health emergency perspective. Uh, and one of the things that came up with one of our clients recently uh, is, and it has come up in some conversations I've had with other clients, is there really are two types of public health emergency. There's the federal public health emergency, which is what sets in motion a lot of these, say, Medicare-specific telehealth policies. And there are state-specific public health emergencies, which cover a lot of the specific regulatory infrastructure of that specific state. And that's everything from provider licensure to restrictions around how telehealth services might take place. And I think there was a, a, a big degree of, I'll say, comfort that came in during the initial uh, public health emergency, both state and federal, where we kind of realized, well, okay, if we had this basic template in place for telehealth, we could just do these things, you know, sort of ad infinitum and the patients liked it. And so what we're seeing now is situations where a public health emergency may wind down in a specific state and exceptions put into place for telemedicine for that state are no longer in place. And that's everything from allowances for out-of-state providers to treat those patients. So if you are a provider who lives uh, or who lives, works, and is licensed, uh, or let's say around a state border, right? So let's say you work in Connecticut, you're licensed in Connecticut, but you kind of work proximate to the border, which being from Connecticut, everywhere is proximate to the border. Uh, and so you may have patients who are coming in from like Massachusetts. 
during telehealth, there was a certain comfort level that went on with how services were provided. As these public health emergencies wind down, Massachusetts, I know from some projects that I've done, has very strict requirements about licensures for patients who are receiving services in the state of Massachusetts. So whereas on the one hand, you may have always been used to patients coming into your office, there may have been telehealth exceptions that allowed you to do certain things. As those exceptions go away, that impacts uh, how you treat patients. So, you know, I always like to say, do these five things, and, and we can't be as definitive as we like, but one of them is understanding any geographic location where a patient domiciles when you treat that patient, understanding what your requirements are in order to treat that patient. So Florida, for example, during the public health emergency passed a law that created a fairly, I'll describe turnkey licensing process for out-of-state providers. So if you wanted to treat a patient who was geographically in Florida and you were not geographically in Florida as the clinician, there was a fairly streamlined mechanism to do that. Now I did a project in Missouri. So when Missouri did not have a public health emergency in place, there was a requirement, for instance, that if a nurse practitioner rendered a telehealth service, a physician had to be geographically no more than a certain distance away for reasons I cannot fully explain, but I think it had to do with the, you know, it, it was a law that probably was put into place before we had the technology we had now, and the feeling was, well, okay, the physician has to be able to physically get to the nurse practitioner within a certain amount of time. And so these laws in different straight states are, are all sort of different, and they all have their wrinkles, but some things you have to focus on are, can you continue to see new patients via telehealth uh, in circumstances where a public health emergency at the state level is not in place? Um, can you continue to provide services without a video connection? Uh, so sometimes the, these services are taking place over the telephone and they're being billed a certain way. What licensures do you need if a patient is geographically in a different location? That includes, frankly, if the patient is on vacation. Uh, what do you need to understand or what do you need to do We've talked in previous guidance, certainly to our clients, about having templated documentation in your telehealth notes that say where the patient's located. But I even had a client in a fairly urban area ask me about that with respect to Medicare gypsies, right? So Medicare gypsies may pay a different amount uh, in a metropolitan city of a state than in a more rural area of a state. And so it's important to have that level of detail. And so I think there's good care and focus that needs to be put into your telehealth policy if you continue to wanna offer these services, because if you, the risk you run is if you are, you know, in Pennsylvania and you have a patient who's located in Maryland and you're not being thoughtful about how you're treating that patient, you may find yourself accused of practicing medicine without a license by the state of Maryland. And so it's important to understand, I think there's a lot of messaging out there that the federal public health emergency uh, will last for another 150 days following the time it's ended, and there'll be 60 days notice before that happens. And so at the federal PHE level, you know, the laws it's written right now provides that you'll kind of get a 210 day runway, uh, but you do have to understand that in many states, the public health emergencies have concluded and the laws that were in place prior to the public health emergency uh, may not be updated. So I think a real important focus when you think about that documentation, and I continue to see uh, when I look at these notes, quite a few instances where I can't discern 
when I look at the note, was this audio only? Was this audio video? What was the nature of the connection? Where was the patient located? And, you know, look, in most instances, I think there's an assumption that providers may be making that the patient is at home, uh, but that may not always be the case. And, and when it comes to pediatrics, there are questions that we get all the time, right? Like, can I do a telemedicine visit uh, with the mother of this three-year-old and the three-year-old is off at like daycare, uh, but she right. has questions about the, the kid, right? And, to, and we cannot do visits that are supposed to be face-to-face -face with the patient when the patient's not there. Now, there's there's obviously with pediatrics, a conversation about, you know, the patient's in the room and running around and playing with toys and, and you know, not giving a great history because he or she is three years old, but that's different than I sent him off to school but I want to ask a question about his or her ADHD. So I think those are important That's considerations right. uh, that we have to keep in mind as we hopefully continue to ease out of the public health emergency. And that was outstanding. Go ahead, Paul. There, there's really no indication that the current PHE rules are going to be carried over. Uh, you know, we don't know that definitively until we get to the end of the road. And if they revert back to where they were, uh, you know, blanketly on day X, uh, that's going to, you know, the challenge for us as auditors is to educate the physicians that, hey, you know, this worked great during the height of the pandemic, but, uh, you know, it's much different now. Uh, and yeah. it's also it's also been complicated by state law uh, with regard to uh, certain types of services, particularly OBGYN services across state lines. Uh, so uh, it's, well, it's going to be ugly. And I think to build yeah. on that, like if you're a physician practice right now, you're working at a physician practice, you have to do these things. If you're rendering telehealth visits and would like to continue, you need to have an understanding of what telehealth regulations in your state were prior to COVID-19. And then ask yourself, are the services that I'm providing right now compliant with those guidelines? Uh, obviously, in many states, there have been changes that have been made to telehealth regulations during COVID-19. So that's the second step, right? Like what changed and does it apply following the conclusion of the public health emergency? So the Florida regulation I referenced earlier was passed during COVID-19 and was not intended strictly as a public health emergency measure. It was basically to enable providers not based in Florida to render services to Florida residents when they were licensed in other states. And there's a whole separate conversation that I don't think we have time for today about interstate licensure compacts and all those things. And I think the last piece I would say is, you know, some of the old lobbying issues that we all know about, right? When it talk, when we talk about uh, what can non-physician practitioners such as NPs and PAs provide and at a state level, how physician-centric organizations lobby against additional licensure for nurse uh, practitioners and physician assistants, all of that has not gone away. So when I reference some of these regulations about uh, nurse practitioners and physician assistants, many states where I've done research on this topic for clients require, for example, that a physician review a certain percentage of nurse practitioner or physician assistant documentation of telehealth services specifically uh, to provide feedback on the nature of that documentation and the services that were rendered. So there are all these little wrinkles in the rules. And so, yeah, I think you have to understand not just for the state you're in, but any state where you will be 
either rendering or planning to render services. I think we're well past the stage where you can say, well, you know, look, I, I work on the border of Ohio and uh, Michigan, and I didn't under I didn't realize that the person was in Michigan and I was in Ohio, right? So those are things right. that we have to understand at this point because it's a huge potential risk. Scott, that was an outstanding breakdown of risks and risk areas that practices and providers need to be aware of. Uh, especially coming out of the public health emergency. And I think the key takeaway is to, one, understand what the rules were prior to the pandemic, because all of the 1135 waivers that have expired are now meaning that you have to go back to the way things were prior to the pandemic. And the flexibilities that we saw during the pandemic are now gone. And to your point, practicing medicine without a license in a certain state could spell complete disaster in the state where you are licensed by winding up with a revocation of your license. So be really careful. Stephanie, I'll give you the last word. Anything on uh, the public health emergency or any of the topics that we've talked about so far today that you just want to kind of give us the final word on? Yeah, so with telehealth, I'm actually seeing some more questions coming in again about what what can be billed as telehealth now. And one of the things I'm recognizing through the questions is that providers are now looking to pivot and use this as a way to bring in extra services now that they're going back into the office. So I just want to remind that, you know, if it's if it's an encounter that would not typically result in a visit in the office, it does not mean that you now can beef up these services and bill for you know, um, notifying of results and things like that. Um, I actually had one example during the pandemic that was pretty horrifying, I would say, and I can see that this may happen going forward. Um, I actually had a physician ask me about a situation her mother was in where she had had a surgery, I believe it was with a GYN physician, and her family practitioner called her during the post-operative period and asked questions about how she was doing and how she was healing, and the bill went out for over $250 for telehealth. So intent matters, and more importantly, patient consent matters, because we're still, you know, we're still looking at making sure that they realize that these phone calls or whatever they may be are an actual encounter. That's such a great, great set of points that you just made, Stephanie. All right. So that's going to bring us to the end of this compliance roundtable on the compliance guy. Here's the great news. This panel has agreed to hang out with me twice a month. So we are going to get working on the next episode that will drop in a couple of weeks after this one. We are going to disrupt your Mondays and we're going to make your Mondays even better than what they are by bringing you the best, latest, and most accurate information on billing, coding, documentation, and compliance. Again, thank you to each and every single one of you who's tuned in, logged on, and hung out with us today for just a little while. We greatly appreciate you spending your Mondays with us. Remember, be good to yourself, but more importantly, be good to each other. And until next time, y'all take care.